All right, Matthew, welcome to episode 105 of the Performance Advantage podcast, where we bring sports science to the people. With myself, Dr. Will O'Connor and Dr. Matt Miller, we are PhD sports scientists, researchers, coaches, wannabe athletes, and education practitioners. So our job with the Performance Advantage podcast is to bring sports science to you in an easily digestible, entertaining way. And we're doing that in a big way today with Tim Podlicka, Dr. Tim Podlicka. Hopefully I'm saying that right. He's Slovenian. And the, the meeting request for this was VO2 max, ketones, and carbohydrates. You would we be loving that, Will. That was, this is why I reached out to, to Tim to have a chat. And, and we talk about all of those things in a big way today why you should be using 120 grams per hour plus of carbohydrates, why you maybe don't need a ketone supplement and why VO2 max is potentially not the best means for measuring fitness. Critical power, Matt. Oh yeah, that was, that was fun. That was fun. We talked a bit about critical power. Unfortunately, we didn't talk about breaking, but I'm sure we'll get into that the next time. But we did talk about some technology issues, which I I really enjoyed talking about some of the technological problems that we've seen over the years in the lab. So it was a fun discussion on some of Tim's recent research. And he's a good chat. He's a really good chat. He wasn't talking about any p-values, right? There was not a single mention of statistical significance. He gave you some really good information. I think sometimes the 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 smarter the person is or the more uh, experience they have in the area the more maybe wishy-washy they are in some of their responses so listen in and you'll get some of the answers that you really need that's right so not only is tim a a research professor at or associate professor at birmingham university the slovenian university he also runs his own lab and is the nutritionist for the professional cycling team world tour team bora hansgrohe so he gives us a little little secret from one of the uh, tour winners there around their nutritional intakes. Uh, so here we go. We'll bring him on. Here's uh, Tim Podlicka. All right, Tim. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. So... Um, the reason I reached out is because I just keep an eye on sports science and what's happening in the research fields. And then this, this article came across, or I don't know if you call it article, it's a viewpoint really about you discussing uh, VO2 max and its application or practicality for, um, I guess, uh, identifying different fitness levels or performance types. Uh, and I thought, oh, this is pretty interesting. And then I just, so I just emailed you, said, hey, this would be great to have a discussion. You said, sure, here we are. And then when I looked into you a bit more, I mean, you've got so much interesting stuff. Uh, the carbohydrate, so um, a lot of the carbohydrate oxidation, your ketones. Um, you just mentioned before the show, you work with uh, a pro cycling team. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to just generally start with the paper and then uh yeah see where we end up i think actually can you tell us a little bit more about yourself tim just to give everyone who's listening like a, a nice overview of who you are yeah so where, okay. where you started up until now cool um yeah so basically i have no like real background from um endurance sports i was a sailor when i was young um, but at some point I decided that um, I want to become a scientist, a sports scientist. So I picked up a sport that I kind of thought that I would like, which was then cycling. Um, and cycling is a sport that you can do a lot of studies in and a lot of studies were done in cycling. So I started like being interested in like endurance sports. Um, and yeah, I did uh, my PhD then at the University of Birmingham um, in the field of exercise metabolism, more um, like carbohydrate metabolism. Um, returned back to where I come from, which is Slovenia, so Primoz Roglic and um, today Pogacar's country. Um, was there for a year, um, got a position at the university, but wasn't too happy about that. So I returned back to the UK. 
Um, and now I'm a research fellow here, um, working in the field of, again, carbohydrate metabolism and environmental physiology, um, looking at whether um, heat acclimation um, improves exogenous carbohydrate oxidation rates, because we know that in the heat, the amount of ingested carbohydrates, um, the, the, the amount of um, carbohydrates that we ingest um, is not as, like the oxidation of them is not as good as in the cool environment. And we want to see if this kind of gets better with um, heat acclimation. So Tim, you got into cycling because of science? Yes. It's usually the other way around. It's definitely the other way around. I've never heard of that before. (laughs) So you're like, oh, well, I want to be a scientist. So this is a good one because basically every research study on exercise is done using some sort of ergometer or like, and you can measure everything. Yeah. So I was like a very weird cyclist. Um, Like I spent probably on average like 15 hours a week um, on the bike, but that's probably like 90% of the time on a yearly basis in the, is indoors on the kicker. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Oh, interesting. Just because you can control all the variables. Is that your approach? Exactly. <laughs> nice. I like it. I like it. Yeah. I think when, uh, when kickers came out, sports scientists were like, yes, this is amazing. <laughs> well, before kickers, the only way you could do a, like an actually good study was on a load ergometer or maybe an SRM bike, which, and they're all really yeah, Velot- expensive. Yeah, yeah Velotron. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there was there was a few, but they're just it was never your own bike. You could well, control all also, the power and um, everything. Because I got that software, uh, Perf Pro or Performance Pro Studio, and like that guy, he developed it when Kickers first came out. When I first started doing my research, and because uh, we use Kickers Tim for the training aspect of it. Um, but he allowed you to just feed in anything. So we're that Moxie, you know, the, the um, near infrared spectrometer for the oxygen um, saturation, hem- uh, saturated hemoglobin. Like I had that, I had like heart rate, cadence, running power. Like you could do all of the stuff. Um, and just because before that, there's no need for these programs to kind of be consumer based or user friendly because there's no, there's no real need for anyone on like your old school ruin your back wheel <laughs> a trainer indoor trainer to do anything but just put some music on and maybe a movie yeah we still use load of bikes here at the uni and um, i hate them <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> the load bikes you hate yeah like that's yeah. just expensive beast yeah yeah and it's really hard to change pedals because you can't get a a wrench uh behind it so when someone wants to use their own pedals everyone just always ended up like stripping out the tool or the pedal and it's just always a bit of a mess and then because they don't actually have a crank uh like a um uh a chain ring when if you've ever tim if you've ever like cross we cross threaded one of the um cranks and so we had to find yeah, so you got to find like I think it was. You need a tandem a, crank, a tandem crank, or a yeah. unicycle. Yeah, when you strip out the right one, because yeah. you need yeah, it without yeah. the spider. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they don't design like a single. Anyway, that's problem. <laughs> Sports science problem. We could create a um, Instagram meme page with about ten followers <laughs> with those. <laughs> uh, so your. Tell us about your this this viewpoint on the VO2 max and why you think it's not good enough. What what's a viewpoint so, actually? What's what's a viewpoint? I've never seen like a published viewpoint. It's usually usually what I see is obviously like an article, like which is an experimental in nature, or you see maybe a a, a review where someone's looking at lots of different articles, or an editorial which is somewhere in between. But you got a viewpoint published in Journal of Applied Physiology, which is the top. That's the top in our field. And you got a viewpoint yeah. published. So they're like, I want to hear what this guy has to say. And we're going to put in this best journal. Um, yeah, it's kind of, it, we needed quite a lot of time to um, get it out. Um, but basically, our idea or like the pur- main purpose of this viewpoint was actually for us scientists to reflect on our work and see if we can improve 
um, because so far we kind of classified the participants. So if you take a study, any pretty much any sports science study from the lab, like exercise metabolism, whatever, the first thing you will see is that participants will be classified according to the VO2 max. So let's say participants um, had a VO2 max of like 75 um, and thus they were elite athletes. Um, and this is kind of for the readership to kind of determine whether like certain intervention or anything else would be appropriate for their, um, let's say, clients if the coach is, uh, for instance, um, reading that. Um, but the problem with this is that, first of all, VO2max is um, a measure that you can only measure in the lab. So you need a specialized equipment. You need a metabolic card um, and you need it like, yeah, get the athlete into the labs, um, which doesn't always happen. The next problem I always saw was that Vitamax is not really good predictor of performance because if you take a look at like um, Vitamax values uh, from like numerous papers where, where they actually assess professional or elite athletes, you see a really good, a really big range of values. So for instance, people with a high Vitamax tend to also have a really good efficiency um, to actually kind of um, to, to, yeah, for to, um, to get yeah, the same values in the performance um, terms. Yeah, well, um, so that's because of the nature of actually measuring VO2 max, because the way a, a VO2 max test goes, and we talked about this, Will and I talked about this a lot in our Training Peaks course, Introduction to Exercise Science for Endurance Coaches. And because the way a VO2 max test starts, it starts really easy and progressively gets harder and harder and harder. So if you're really efficient as an athlete, you're going to be able to go for a longer time because it's progressively getting harder. And then eventually you, everyone hits a point where they just can't go anymore. And then that's your VO2 max. So if you have really, well, let's say relatively high power, you can go for longer, right? Which automatically kind of gives you a high VO2 max value in this method of testing. Yeah, um, so Vitamax on its own is like a really like problematic measure. So um, it strikes me when I was reading like papers from um, papers from Northern um, Europe uh, where they had participants with a Vitamax of like 75 on average. So I thought, well, that these are really true elite athletes. And I started reading the paper and then I stumbled um, upon the values of the power at four millimoles, which is kind of the second threshold, like critical power, FTP, whatever uh, we say. And then the values were like 4.5 watts per kilo. And this is like one watt per kilo, almost lower than what I have. And I was like, well, I can drop these guys on every single climb. <laughs> so <laughs> what's the point? These guys are definitely not elite. So um, obviously they have a lot to like space for improvement. And that's why they saw like massive improvements in performance uh, because of that given intervention. So, well, perhaps we should stop like classifying participants according to V2Max um, and start using something else. Um, something that can also be used in the field because V2Max on its own, it's like pretty much useless number uh, for practitioners. Um, and whereas on the other hand, like functional threshold power, critical power, lactate thresholds, there are all values that you can very easily measure um, out in the field and everybody knows what those numbers are. On the other hand, VHMX is pretty much yeah, useless. It's, it's just based for the um, labs. And then also when you start reading about like exercise metabolism papers, um, participants were exercising at 70% of VHMX. What does this number tell a practitioner? Nothing, because you you have absolutely no idea in like whether whether this is below or above the threshold. Um, for some people, it can be below, or for some above. It's just like random, um, so it's not like a physiological thing. Um, and then the worst thing that can happen is using the watt max, um, which is basically the end power of the test. Um, of the graded test. And then we all know that if you do a graded test, like with increment of 30 watts per one minute, 
the end power will, will be much higher than uh, when you do 30 watts every two minutes. Uh, so this is also like down to context and you have to use the same, exactly the same protocol if you want to like kind of replicate the findings. Um, so why don't we like start using the thresholds like lactate threshold or whatever, just like something physiological and something that we can be used in the, in the applied field. And it's also like make more sense um, in the science from the scientific perspective. And this was kind of the main point. And we kind of argue in there that we think that critical power um, is the best way, but yeah, um, I think point number one is don't use just V2max, report other measures as well. And if we were to decide which measure to use instead of V2max, we would say critical power. One of the things that we did in probably most of our papers on mountain bikers is we classified them as nationally competitive. And like, that's even more ambiguous because what the heck does that even mean? Especially when you come from a very small country that has 5 million people. Well, if you're, <laughs> you could almost be nationally competitive just by living here <laughs> in a way, <laughs> but the, there are very good athletes, but the, the, it's a, to characterize them. That was a poor way to do it, but it just, it always struck me as well. It's like, why, why am I bringing everyone in? We're doing an FTP test. Like this is maybe part of the protocol or something like that. And then we report their VO2 max. We have to bring them in another day, which is a, like a real pain in the butt because you already have to work around so many scheduling things and you like uh go in the lab at 5 a.m or something or you stay real late and they don't want to go there for the third time either because they might have to travel and we we only do it just for that uh, tradition right we're reporting vo2 yeah. max because everyone has always reported vo2 max and you only need it for that one line in the paper that says like <laughs> describes your participants i was like this is such a waste of my time so eventually we stopped even reporting their VO2 max because of what well, we're measuring power anyway. I'm not going to bring them in for a third time. 11 people in an extra time is just, uh, it's too much. But we, we ended up doing it at the start just because everyone else always did it. Yeah, exactly. This is how we do it in like an exercise metabolism. So every participant comes in, we do a standardized VO2 max test. It's usually not really, not really a, the proper VO2 max test, which is like, 10 to 12 minutes long, but we use a longer one, like almost a fat max protocol, just because that's the way how it's been done for, I don't know, 20 years. And we just don't question ourselves sometimes. We just do it. Um, and that's the problem of like, yeah, science, I think. Well, yeah. part of the, the problem <clears throat> from that is uh, that we establish these norms, right? So 70 is... Uh, you know, above 70, we'll call that elite, um, maybe 60, 65 in women. Uh, and then anyway, we can set those upper limits. And then we go, like I did for my study, the fixed intensity, like repeatable measures was two hours at 65%, um, kind of like traditional fat max, kind of like aerobic threshold. And so we go, all right, I can do that because when I then go to get it published and someone's going to review it, they're going to go good. That's, that's, that's exactly what you need. If you go in and you go, we didn't test VO2 max uh, and I did you know, a critical power test and then they, or a lactate threshold test and then they went off of you know, VT1 or lactate threshold one or into whatever, uh, we, we operate, you know, we did the test at that. They'll go, no, no, you can't, you can't do that. And so one of the problems I had when I was doing um, my ketosis, my like exogenous ketone stuff, and I was doing ketogenic diets, I couldn't find any article ever that fully referenced 0.5 millimolar as the point that ketosis is like is metabolically induced or that is the threshold. It didn't exist. The only paper I could find was 0.2 millimolars in millimole in dogs in about the 1930s. Otherwise, someone made up, I think it was like the Finney and Volick stuff, they said 0.5. And so I used, I said, oh, well, this is the only one, like 0.2 along above that. This is what 
original science has said. And they go, no, you've got to do 0.5. I was like, why? It doesn't, what? So now if you go on anywhere, it's like, well, 0.5, you're above 0.5, you're in ketosis. It's like, you could be, again, like how metabolically efficient are you? What are you doing with your ketones? Does it, <laughs> yeah, sorry, that's my rant, but <laughs> but this is going to be yeah. one of the, the problems where you say, like I read yours and, and it really resonated with me, especially some of the stuff where, yeah, I used 65% to, um, of VO2 max. I'm like, yeah, this could have been, this was clearly in the lab for two hours, really hard for some people and totally fine for others. And so when we're doing metabolic testing, repeatable metabolic testing across different diets and interventions, how much noise are we getting compared to if we were um, doing a critical power model? So part of the, your viewpoint, you said this, and you, you said, yep, fair to max, there's these inherent um, like errors in it or um, flaws, we're going to use critical power. Then they said, we want your comments. <laughs> you kind of had an open review process, which I thought was really interesting. So what are some of the um, critiques of your, what people have said to you about um, using, and not just critical power, you said the, the, um, the threshold between, uh, was it heavy and severe? Yeah. Uh, which is traditionally that typical, if someone's thinking in the head threshold, it's, it's that, right? So yeah, so, what, what were people saying? So yeah, we got like 30 responses, which is like kind of amazing. Uh, <laughs> um, usually like this papers, like it's like five to 10 responses, but then we got 30, which is kind of, yeah, wow, um, just unbelievable. Uh, but yeah, on, uh, generally, I think people are kind of, agree that VO2max on its own is pretty much useless. Um, it's kind of a really good like predictor of general fitness, let's say, um, in a heterogeneous uh, group. So like untrained, highly trained, you can discern um, who, is, who has a better fitness, but then um, in a um, group of athletes, then yeah, VO2max on its own is not sufficient. So there was kind of an agreement on that. and. Um, probably the biggest problem why we didn't get this viewpoint published elsewhere and earlier uh, was the fact that critical power, the concept of critical power um, is getting kind of a lot of um, bad press, a lot of negative attention because some say the threshold is maximal active steady state. Some others say it's critical power. Some third people say that now it's four millimoles um, of lactate. So I think this is the kind of the biggest, yeah, dispute there was and also like just using one simple power is probably not sufficient again um because yeah well even if you look at the critical power itself are you going to express it uh watts per kilo or are you going to express this watts um just normally like unnormalized body mass um so these are all kind of yeah uh, really good points that you kind of have to consider um, and the reason why we think that critical power is really good is because you have this anaerobic capacity component. So also like W prime so that you can kind of calculate also and you have an idea of what happens above the critical power. Uh, whereas with lactate threshold, for instance, or, or maximal lactate steady state, you don't get this number or like ability to perform with um, really high intense efforts. Um, so yeah, Critical power definitely is not perfect, and those were the kind of the comments, yeah, uh, we received. But in general, they all agree that yeah, VO2max on its own is probably not sufficient. Can you tell everyone what critical power is and how you might measure it? Because there's a lot of ways you can measure it. <laughs> yeah, it's basically a mathematical model um, that we usually kind of yeah um, do. So um, in the old days, it was defined as the power output that you can sustain for a long time without fatigue. Um, and this is not anymore the case. This is like an old, very old definition um, that probably yeah, um, is not um, appropriate anymore. We kind of determine it usually using a test. You do a, like a um, three minute all out effort and a 12 minute out uh, all out effort. Um, and then using a mathematical function, you then determine like the um, 
the critical power and the exercise capacity. So basically, um, critical power is basically the power that you can sustain uh, for a pretty long time. Um, it's the maximal power output um, that kind of in the muscle itself uh, doesn't call, uh, cause an accumulation of um, uh, free phosphate. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, it, it has a lot of definitions of how it, like physiologically define it or mathematically. Um, and it's not like a value that it's set in stone. It's like it fluctuates. Um, and this is the problem people have with this value because it's not like, for instance, um, FTP, which is like 60 minutes all out power. Um, this is more like depends on the protocol a bit. Um, so whether you use like um, just two data points, like three minutes all out and 12 minutes all out, or you use three, five and 12, and it's not as easy. And that's just kind of, yeah, the problem of the critical power, because still it's pretty hard to like, yeah, get it right uh, in non-us trained individuals. So like in those that are not used to this kind of testing. Would that make sense? Yeah, we, we had some problems with critical power. Because originally I started testing FTP in mountain bikers. And then we, we looked at critical power. And the way that we measured it was a three-minute all-out test. And we did some work to kind of do a multiple regression combining Sounds W prime. For those aren't and, watching. <laughs> yeah. Well, it it was good. Critical power is good. And actually critical power. So critical power, we found critical power was better at predicting. Actually, you should have cited, cited my study, Tim. I'm disappointed that you didn't find it because uh, critical power was better at predicting performance than uh, the, the lactate steady state. So that's what we showed in our paper. So that would actually have been really nice reference in this paper. So critical power is good. We did a little bit of work combining doing a multiple regression with W prime and the critical power. And it was actually pretty good for predicting mountain bike performance due to this like somewhat of an anaerobic component, but we, we actually didn't publish that part of the study. But critical power is good. But one of the problems is there's like a zillion ways that we can use to classify your fitness level and then test whether you've improved because one of the easiest ones is FTP. And you said it's a one hour all out, but there are a lot of people that do a 20 minute test. And there are as many, and there's science to kind of show that they're equal, that you can use an eight minute test to get the same result as a 20 minute test. So then now you're getting short, right? Now you're talking, all right, we're doing an, an eight minute test to try and figure out someone's endurance capacity. It's only eight minutes. There's a big component of that is anaerobic. So how are we actually finding the aerobic level, whatever, whatever you want to call that? We're not actually doing that when we're down to uh, about eight minutes. So critical power is probably better, but if you're using just a three minute test, well, it's probably worse. What do you think about all that? Yeah, the three minute all out test. I, I've never tried it just because it's like even reading the protocol, um, it reads so, it's so painful that you're just yeah. like, yeah. It's too <laughs> hard. I actually had someone for one of my studies, he traveled three hours, it was a friend and he felt really bad for me. That's why he was taking part in my study. <laughs> he, he came, he did the three minute test and you got to start as hard as possible. And he's on the load ergometer, he's at a set weight. So his cadence is like 180 or something like that. And he's going as hard as he can for the first 30 seconds. And he just stopped. It was too hard because he, he just kind of like blew up really quickly. He's like, I feel weird. I have to stop. And he had driven three hours to do it. And he went home and he came back the next week and retried. And that was, you know, that this is a good friend, right? He really cared to help me with my study, but it is hard. Like that is hard. And to, to be able to get the W prime component, which is like saying, well, this is how much higher above your threshold, whatever it is you want to call it is how much work you can do above that. You have to actually go hard and you have to go very hard to be able to get that number right. And it's tricky. So what do you use? Yeah, we, when we do the test, um, the last test I did was a year and a half ago um, because it's so painful. So it was three minute and 12 minute all out. Um, but- um, So you do yeah, both the last of those. Time, 
Yeah, so the last, we usually like do the protocol like with 40 minutes of rest in between. Um, and the last time I was doing it was after 2000 kilojoules of work um, performance. So I was sitting on the kicker doing some intervals and some steady state and then did three minutes all out, but then I couldn't, I, my pacing was bad. <laughs> so I only did like minute and a half and then I stopped. <laughs> uh, then waited for 40 minutes repeated a three minute all out um or it was yeah i think yeah three minutes all out and then did 12 minutes all out so it was like five hour long session um and that was the last time i did it and i hated it uh, so yeah yeah I, I mean it's also that's probably not a great indicator of what your actual critical power was as well since you had maybe blown up along the way as well as that's hard that's hard but it's like a race anyway right yeah that's what you have to do but also like one of the things that I think like even though if if you say like you use a threshold like the, the, the FTP or you use the maximum elected steady state or you use the critical power, the difference between those numbers will be like, I don't know, 15 watts. Um, and Pogacar will still be an elite athlete um, and Roglic will still be an elite athlete. Whereas with view to max, somebody has can have a view to max of like 75 and he might not even be able to like compete at the highest level um so even if you take like all those different measures together i think that it's still a better uh proxy of performance than um yeah view to max yeah, yeah as a reference for those listening with vo2 max and what tim's saying about not being super good at comparing between individuals of similar fitness levels a homogeneous group rather than heterogeneous like someone off the street versus me right and you go okay well someone's unfit someone's fit um there's a paper that uh andy jones published around the first sub two hour project where they tried to run a marathon under two hours and they had i can't remember how many people uh how many runners they initially had in around eight but i mean they had vo2 max values of I think it was around 70 to, to 85. Now, 70, that's, I, I, mine's 72, between 70, 75, depends what the testing, you know, and I'm nowhere near, nowhere near, like half an hour away from running sub two. But then uh, the combination of their running economy, so the ability to maintain or how fast they can run at that um, body mass, all of these things meant that, like, that number's, useless it's it's like okay well me and uh an east african elite world-class runner are the same so all interventions will equally affect both of us because we're in the same uh like yeah same group of uh fitness levels but then if we used a, a critical power or critical speed model with the runners you'd go okay will's running 330s 340 minutes per k and these guys are running 240s <laughs> and then you can easily see and then even um if you use a ftp test if you use even if you just use 5000 meter or 10000 meter performance uh and i think someone actually mentioned that right using uh race results in the comment in the comments yeah, um, yeah. you could use uh and there's there's a lot of noise in that so You'd probably want to use maybe an athletics track like me, but um, all of those you can clearly see based off of a, a 5,000 meter time, which is pretty reproducible for a lot of people to be able to do a 5K. Uh, that's why I use it in my critical power test. And um, yeah, you can ease it without even worrying about any physiological measure. You can just go, well, I did 21 minutes and go, okay, well, I don't need to know what your VO2 max is. I can. You know, don't worry about what Garmin's telling you. It's, <laughs> um, we know what kind of fitness level you are. Exactly, yeah. Um, that, that was the main point. Because um, I was all, always uh, kind of very angry because my WKO5 was saying that my view to max is like 80. But whenever I measured it, it was below 70. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, I'm angry because um, Garmin says mine's like 62. And I know it's a lot higher than that. <laughs> I think we also get into problems with the actual equipment that we use. 
to measure VO2 max, we had some massive problems. We were using, I think I've used maybe three different kinds, different brands of devices to measure VO2 max. They always give different results, always. Uh, and one of the ones that we were using, because we were doing a lot of outdoor testing. So we had the portable VO2 uh, gas analyzer, which was the Cosmed K4B2. And the flow meter in there, just something was wrong with it. Something was wrong somewhere and we couldn't figure it out. And we honestly, weeks of my life and weeks of Will's life and weeks of the lab technician's life, trying to figure out like what was actually causing the problem and giving us these ridiculous values for VO2 max. And not just VO2 max. I can't remember, Will, if you, do you remember what the actual problem was? It might've been like, it was way too high of an oxygen level or something or the flow was off. Yeah, but, as a combination, I think those online, like uh, breath by breath systems, they struggle with peak flow rates and trying to sample because they're uh, bi-directional, they're measuring like the in and out flows kind of get noisy. So we're trying to measure uh, like the oxygen coming in and then the oxygen and CO2 being blown off. Like, so if you just think about breathing and then imagine sticking like a pipe in your mouth with a sensor in it and go as hard as you can for three minutes and try and like measure, okay, how much oxygen is coming in from the ambient air? And then how much, I guess you could estimate what's coming in, but. Well, remember we had the, part of it. the guy from the company like came to New Zealand to check it out <laughs> and they're an Italian company. It's crazy. I, we were like, uh, I mean, I must say I wasn't giving them a hard time, but everyone else was like really upset about it, but <laughs> Yeah, he came eventually and it's like, no, it's right. And we're like, all right, forget it. We yeah, so what do you, what, what's, what's right. your experience? I mean, like, obviously you said um, you, you, have a, you have your own lab in Slovenia. Uh, you've you tested there, you're in Birmingham. I'm sure you've tested other places. What's your opinion? Yeah, so this is really funny. I have a funny story as well, because as I said, whenever I tested, my view to max was like, 68 67 up to 70 um and this was on the machines in the lab in birmingham uh so we have the vintus machines so we have we had three pretty brand pretty new machines and like um normally serviced and whichever machine i use it was always the same so repeatable measures then i got to slovenia um and i haven't measured my view to max for a while because i was without a lab but then I got my first lab at the university there. Um, we had um, COSMET, the one, the CPET, so the, the, the metabolic card. Um, uh, yep. I measured it there, um, 75. So I was like, well, yeah, those ones are real generous. Higher. <laughs> That's much higher. Um, and then we bought a Cortex for my lab. Um, so we used Cortex, um, the German company, and it was 75 again. So I went back to, the university and it was like 75 again so whenever i measure view to max in slovenia it's 75 whenever i measure it in the uk it's below 70 and i have absolutely no idea why this is the case well someone might say to you so someone might ask this question well maybe it is actually different what would you say to that i don't know yeah one of the things i was thinking about is so when you calibrate it um you calibrate it against uh, gas concentration in a bottle and a gas concentration in the air. So if the air concentration, for instance, is more polluted here than it is in Slovenia, so the CO2 would change, that could have an effect on the, um, how the metabolic art is behaving. But here in Birmingham, we also have Douglas bags. So I ke uh, kind of um, tried to see if like during steady state cycling, I get a different values from Douglas bags as compared to the metabolic card and, and it was the same. So I have absolutely no idea what's, what's the problem. And this is something that annoys me um, and keeps annoying me. Um, and this is another reason why I don't like view to max Yeah, dude, you should write a new viewpoint on just this actually. Uh, but I'm guessing though, every time you do a VO2 max test, you're using the same protocol, right? And you're probably getting to the same power output, right? Yeah. So it kind so of comes full circle to your power argument, doesn't it? Yeah. It's the power is the same, just different value. 
for some yeah. reason. Right. So oh. that could then throw off what other researchers are finding if they're just looking at VO2 max. And this is where we get to the, the whole reason you did this viewpoint article <laughs> is, you know, therein lies the problem. Yeah. So in that you, uh, you've been in the field, you're a cyclist yourself. Like, what do you use? You, you work with uh, uh, athlete cyclists, you said. Like, there's noise everywhere. Obviously, there's a research arm, the side of things where you need to be a lot more stringent. But then uh, a lot of the people listening go, well, what can, what can I do? I wasn't going to get my VO2 max anyway. So what's going to be the best way? I don't know. Like, it's, if you have an estimate that you know the limitations of, like, if, let's say, I was training for a long time using just FTP, like 60 minute power output, because I was uh, listening to Steven Zeiser and I was all into like FTP. And for a year, I was just using FTP. It was working fine. As long as I'm always using the same measure and I know what's kind of what to expect from it, it's fine. Um, there is no problem. Um, it's very similar thing as with nutrition. For instance, some people try to, because as work as a nutritionist, some people really try to kind of match calories in and calories out um, and they like really obsessed about that um, so they like the way the food um, every like piece of pasta or like all the food and then i'd like to ask them like how do you know that the energy expenditure actually um, and they're like yeah well the garmin tells me i'm using a power meter but everybody forgets that power meters only measure external power so you don't really have an idea of like efficiency and efficiency changes um, from when you're cycling 100 watts and when you're cycling 400 watts you have absolutely no idea what's with the efficiency there um, and also like daily fluctuations in like metabolic rate um, so at the end of the day you're probably like plus minus 400 calories if you're talking about professional cyclists um, and why bother then weighing every single piece of food? Um, because you're not never going to actually um, get there. Um, and also like if you do intervals sometimes and you like, you know exactly your critical power, um, on one day you will be able to do those intervals without problem with that power output. The next day you simply will fail. Um, and this is because all those measures we have like are fluctuating day to day. Um, so it's not like a number that like 340 watts and that's exactly the number um, of my critical power. It's not, um, it's probably like anything between like 325 and I don't know, 360, uh, depending on the day, I guess. It's a big difference, right? Yeah. So it's difficult though, especially if you have someone who's like really motivated, right? And they want to check all those things. How do you kind of meet them in the middle if they want to weigh their food or say they want to re re like hit the intervals exactly where they are, even though they know they might be a little bit too tired to hit that exact power output on that day? How do you kind of try yeah, and the, talk them through then that? You, uh, then you probably man manipulate what like to achieve what you want. Um, like in terms of nutrition, you prescribe more and just say, yeah, well, you're in energy balance, for instance. <laughs> Um, and you just don't care. Um, so like, I don't know, if you're like following a three week long race, sometimes you want people to be in energy surplus uh, just so that they really recover and fill up the stores. And you just say a white lie sometimes. Um, and when you're doing intervals, perhaps you just yeah, say that this is like, yeah, um, what you can do, but um, on a better day, you know that this person would be able to achieve more um so sometimes you just have to like and just yeah do some yeah white line <laughs> or how do you say it's like those athletes that oh, they always want something yellow on training peaks so they just like always do slightly more so that's easy yeah. you just prescribe slightly less right and then yeah, you exactly. know that they're going to hit what they're supposed to hit <laughs> perfect yeah exactly so i i mean my I, I'm not coached by myself because I would always, I always overtrain myself um, for exactly this reason. Because I always like click on that, like when I'm training on trainer route, I try like 1% more because I need to do more than what it says. Uh, 
and coach knows that so it's always like yeah a bit lower than um what it can be so i'm interested with uh like elite professional cyclists professional athletes that you've worked with uh how like you've kind of explained it but how stringent are you being in terms of going all right you need to be at 87 percent or you need to exert uh nine minutes of your uh w prime so your anaerobic work capacity uh are you doing are you that intense is anyone training at that level of specificity or are you back at what we traditionally do with five by five minutes at 90 percent three minutes recovery at between 40 and 60 plus you know what's what's happening in the real world i think like i'm not coach myself so i just see what coaches are prescribing because i need to then do nutrition but yeah. what i see and it's kind of funny is that the more elite the athletes are, the more simple the uh, prescription of training sessions is. Um, so you would just see like three times, three minutes hard or very hard, or I don't know, like three times, 12 minutes at that, um, like, yeah, um, 320 to, I don't know each number. Um, so you don't get like exact numbers as you get like with amateur athletes that you have like, intervals that are like three minutes long and the next one is two minutes long and exactly that power output like training peaks intervals that you can uh, kind of do the the graphs and they look very nice uh, this is more or less i see for as an entertainment just so they can kind of yeah it's not boring um because the prof training sessions of professionals are usually boring they just write and then do some intervals and then they write and then they then they do again some intervals. Whereas um, like amateurs want like very structured workouts exactly at that power output because they believe that's gonna make them better. Um, and yeah, well, um, it will probably will because otherwise they will just fire you if you don't, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's so true though. It is like exertainment, isn't it? Well, no, I think for, for me, using the training peak structured stuff is just, this is zone three like this is 85 percent. not because uh, a pro athlete their range begins just as a percentage begins to be really large like they'll so you can say you know i want you i want you around you know seven out of ten i want you hard i want you like we're doing um some someone's attacked and they go oh yeah i got that like that's around 350 i can hit that um whereas and especially with runners you kind of go well like you can't do four minute Ks. That's too, it's too fast. Like you've never, it's too fast. And so you need to set those, those limits. Whereas with um, like a pro runner, they know, they know like they're just, they're so dialed that you can just say, yeah, 10 K do, do some intervals at 10 K, but if it's at altitude, you know, you're going to be a little slower. If you're going on undulating, it's going to be a little slower. And so I find it, yeah, just slowing down. But as you get, better and better you go easy run you know and their range is so large that they go easy easy and then because they don't want to go hard hard's really hard whereas when you're running three times a week you can go hard every single day i mean you can you really nicely see this when you go like for a holiday to like some mountains and like alps or um, i don't know in italy uh, when you look at people at the bottom of like Stelvio or like the, those um, peak calls and they, you see them like going really, really hard from the start. Um, and then on the top, they're so slow, they barely move because just they just can't pace themselves. And the better the athlete is, the better the pacing of the effort will be. Um, and this is probably why you really need to prescribe the exact what's for amateur athletes um whereas the pro will know like well this climb is long <laughs> i think they know exactly what it means to ride um like an hour long climb or something like this and yeah what power they can sustain um and then if you have just one climb in the day but then you have like four climbs um they also know that what happens when you reach the last climb 
um, because for amateur, oh yeah, well, I'm fresh, I can push. Um, and then you, they just go for the first one, I don't know, but threshold because they feel, well, I can sustain this for an hour. Uh, but yeah, you have three climbs like this <laughs> um, and it's not gonna, never going to happen that you will be riding the same power for three climbs. Um, so I guess this is also down to experience for sure. Yeah, that, in a way, like a, a really high level athlete can look at the prescription of the training and they've done enough training. They're like, all right, I see what we're going for here. Uh, and, and if I can hit that, I can hit that. And if I can't hit that, well, I still see what we're going for. So I won't be too upset about it. That's, that's yeah. another big one I've noticed is like when you have less training to do, uh, like as an amateur, you put a lot of weight on the performance of the, of the workout or the session, you know? So if it's five by five minutes, you know, you want to hit the speed because this means good and slower than this means bad. <laughs> and like slower than last week is bad. You know, uh, whereas as a professional, like, you know that you're going to turn up on the day. And if you're in, you know, when you're horrible, but you also know that you're 20 watts lower, like you're, you're 5% lower than a prescription or, you know, like, that's fine. That's, it's all part of this big process of, you know, what it's like. Um, I think these are big differences that people probably forget because the only thing you see on social media or YouTube is just absolutely nailing sessions. Yeah. I mean, Plus, if like, you look like from physiological perspective, like how do we tell muscles to get better? Right. Um, so this is kind of as a physiologist um, that like spends most of the days in the lab. I don't know how I can tell my muscles to a kind of, yeah, um, they, they will be able to discern between like, different types of intervals and stuff so basically it's just a play and you want to disturb like the homeostasis um and sometimes on a certain day you might be like glycogen depleted a bit so you will disturb the homeostasis to the same degree with uh, lower power outputs um as on the other day when you're like full of glycogen so those fluctuations in power output make sense and you can get the same benefit um, but if you're trying to like always hit the numbers, even if you're fatigued, you can actually overtrain yourself, just push too hard and then the recovery will be uh, longer. Um, so trying to understand this and professionals definitely do understand it because, well, they have been doing this for ages. Um, on the other hand, like amateurs don't. So um, that's yeah, kind of an issue you have as a coach. So Tim, what's the future of the research that you're doing currently? You said you're looking at the effects of temperature on how we met metabolize carbohydrates. Can you tell us so, a little bit about uh, that? Yeah, so I'm very much into like carbohydrates for competition and performance, um, like dealing with like fructose um, and different types of carbohydrates. But this particular project, is about like competing in the heat. We know like this year's Tour de France, um, the temperatures were like super high, like in the forties. Um, and we know from like, probably like 2000s and something that when you're exercising the heat, um, the ability to oxidize the glucose um, is kind of glucose coming from the drinks um, gets reduced. So let's say, um, in the cool environment, which is like well, very well air-conditioned um, lab, you can oxidize 60 grams of carbohydrates or glucose that you ingest. Um, if it's hot, um, what happens is you can only oxidize like 50 grams or 45 grams um, and not 60 anymore. Um, and the reasons we don't really know why this happens, I mean, why this happens. So one of the like the most obvious explanations would be the blood is not going into the gut. So the absorption is lower. Um, and this, yeah, um, this becomes a problem. But we also know that like with heat acclimation, many things get better, um, but nobody actually checked if, um, yeah, um, exogenous carbohydrate rates also kind of you get this rescue. Because like when we look at the guidelines, we always recommend the same amount for exercising in the heat and exercising in a cold environment. Um, and we also know that like um, 
the gastrointestinal discomfort, the prevalence of problems um, is much higher in the heat. So perhaps we should tune down uh, the recommendations or simply advise, well, you have to heat acclimate and with heat acclimation, you will uh, regain this capacity to uh, use those carbohydrates. Um, and this is basically yeah, just one of the projects I'm kind of working on. Um, for instance, I've just like got a study accepted this uh, past Sunday, comparing 90 versus 120 grams per hour. Um, I was gonna ask you about that. Which is, yeah, so this is yeah another big one. Um, and last week as well, it was like the addition of fructose at breakfast improves exercise capacity. Um, as compared to like having glucose-based carbohydrates only. So I really like to kind of do some more applied work um, in research, um, answer like relevant questions. Um, so I think Matt and I mentioned this last episode or the episode before, like 120 grams per hour ingestion rate. Where has this come from? Because I mean, we were at 60, and then we went to 90 and people were like 90, whoa. And now we're seeing 120. I mean, that is outrageous. That is like a gel every 10 minutes. Can you imagine doing yeah. that? Well, to be fair, they recommend that on the package, but I thought that was all just a marketing thing. So what do you think, Tim? Um, yeah, I can say probably that Jiro um, uh, was won this year with even more than that. So um can you say that with confidence or <laughs> do you know something we don't know <laughs> uh, yeah probably <laughs> <laughs> cool <laughs> so more than 120 so, wow yeah. yeah so um we see guys eating on average on stage really hard stage races between 120 and 150 grams per hour without any issues um don't ask me if all of it gets oxidized because I have yeah. no idea and whether this is kind of improving performance, but this is actually possible to achieve from the like gastrointestinal discomfort uh, perspective. So we're, how are we measuring this? Like you say in the tour uh, or any tour, large stage, multi-stage race, uh, cycling race. And to me, I'm like, yeah, that just on, on top of my head, they make sense because they can be riding it. 40%, you know, they can be absolutely cruising and that's not going to have really any effect on, you know, the blood distribution away from the gastrointestinal tract. It's not going, you know, the muscles are barely moving, probably not getting that hot. Um, so have we, have we tested it in like two hours at a, a steady state, you know, at, you know, 80% critical power or anything like what's, where, where, have, where have we started getting 120 grams plus from? I don't know. So basically, like most of research in this area was done here in Birmingham, actually, from Asker Yeoken Group. So um, first they determined that, well, you can only oxidize up to like 60 grams of glucose per hour. Um, and then they figured out that fructose uses the different transporters. So if you saturate glucose transporter, then perhaps you can oxidized more with addition of fructose. So they added um, half more of the fructose. So you get like 60 and then you get 30 of fructose and then you get 90, right? Uh, two to one ratio. So this was this ratio was born um, and this made into the guidelines and everyone is saying about, is talking about two to one ratio. Um, and because yeah, we know that 60 grams for glucose is the limit, and then you just add 30 and you get to 90. But Asker Yokin group, so just the also the current nutritionist for Jumbo Visma, um, he actually did a couple of studies with 2.5 grams per minute ingestion rate, which I think comes out as 144 grams per um, hour. Um, there are a couple of studies from I think 2006, um, actually. Uh, so quite a long time ago. And they actually saw that you can actually oxidize more carbohydrates if you ingest more um, during exercise, but that never made into the guidelines because I don't know, for some reason they didn't see the benefit. Um, and for years it was like up to 90 grams, um, but 
I started thinking about this, like whether it's actually 90 grams, the limitation already like a few years ago when I was doing my PhD um, here. Um, and I really wanted to test if like, perhaps we could do 120 grams per hour. Um, so probably like many other research researchers were thinking about the same thing uh, because, well, the more energy you get, the better. Um, and there are now a few studies out there using yeah, 120 grams per hour and kind of, yeah, some showing some benefits. You said uh, the more energy you can get in, the better. And so that just leads me to the last question. Exogenous ketones. That's an energy source that we previously were not privy to, I guess, uh, being able to uh, digest or ingest. Uh, what's, what's your findings with that, if you have any? Yeah, so we did a study, yeah, I think we published it last year, uh, where we looked at uh, exogenous ketones in um, simulated rays and in hypoxia. Uh, so what we did was um, three hours of um, kind of riding uh, with varied intensity. Um, and we started like at, let's say, sea level and then slowly uh, increase the hypoxia. So at the end of these three hours was already, I don't know, 2,700 meters or something like that. So the um, altitude of Stelvio, and then there was a time trial, which is like 15 minutes long, and then a sprint. Um, and we had four conditions, um, ketones, uh, ketones plus bicarbonate, um, uh, bicarbonate on its own, um, and just, yeah, just carbs, so placebo. Um, and we saw no, like, no, no performance benefits and nobody actually found a lot of performance benefits, I think. Um, but what we found was that oxygenation was, muscle oxygenation was improved with ketones. And I think look, from a metabolic perspective, ketones are really, really interesting. Um, um, so once we figure out how they work, perhaps we can find a way how to utilize them to actually improve performance. But at the moment we have a problem that we don't really know what they do uh, in the body, whether they like spare glycogen, uh, what the effects of like increased insulin um, um, are and uh, what the dose needs to be. We have different types of ketone esters out there and it's, yeah, it's a bit of a mess um, still. Um, I don't know if you agree, but yeah, that's, that's my view. Yeah, well, I have a because I did. I didn't use an ester. I used a one three butanediol precursor um, to uh, beta hydroxybutyrate that got immediately converted in the liver. But yeah, it was. I don't know. Oh, we don't know. You know, there's oxidative potential um, because of the uh, like the free energy of the actual ketone. But something has to be happened when you increase ketones blood ketone levels to the level of fasting like the the body if we call it the body or the brain it doesn't see that unless you fast like you know prehistorically or like evolutionarily we don't get large levels of ketones like that without fasting or without drastic carbohydrate restriction so something has to be happening but yeah i don't i don't think they're the super drink that everyone initially made out but i was just, i was interested to see what your lab had done and what you what you'd seen but yeah yeah we didn't like do a lot like i was i was collaborating with peter haskell's group on that one um so he's probably like yeah doing the most work at the moment um, in this field um, and studies keep coming out from his lab um so hopefully we'll see something yeah um much more interesting but the last time i checked like ketones can be like beneficial for the first part of races when it's not all out um whereas at the moment it looks like they can impair the like the high intense uh, performance of very intense efforts um just because of down regulation of carbohydrate metabolism um but this could equally be very important for the first parts of the stage when you want to spare glycogen right um so did you uh did you try some? Were yours disgusting? Um, unfortunately, couldn't. So this is like a really I, I was a postdoc um in Slovenia 
on that study um and i was supposed to travel to belgium to run that study um that i ended up being co-author of um but due to COVID restrictions, I couldn't travel. So I only analyze the data. So I never tried a ketone. So, yeah. Okay. Well, my ones we had were disgusting. <laughs> that was, uh, man, thought I was going to vomit. It was so bad. It like yeah, stuck, I, I, coated your tongue with this oil. It was, oh man, it was bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's why when, and I'd heard from the other, some other researchers like, yeah, ours tastes disgusting as well. And I was like, well, if someone's drinking that up Stelvio or like, you know, at seven watts per kg, you'd see it on their face. There's no way someone's just downing this like <laughs> for, for fun. That would be so, yeah. It's always interesting what comes out in the media and what's, what's actually happening. I've, I think these days that most teams are actually using ketones for recovery. Um, as far as I know, uh, I'm not sure, but that's how I view it. And during racing, I don't think, anyone at all uses them so um but that's just how much i know mm. hey tim it's been awesome to have you on really enjoyed this discussion if people want to um follow you like you're obviously up to heaps uh you're always doing something in some country or continent so uh how can we like how can people reach out to you or follow you or where, where are you present uh yeah, the, the easiest is on probably on Instagram or on Twitter. Uh, on Twitter, it's Tim Podlogar, uh, my name and surname. And on Instagram, it used to be the same handle, uh, but my account was blocked. Um, so I have a new one. So it's T uh, Podlogar. Um, so yeah. <laughs> too much ketones talk or too much, too much <laughs> VO2 bashing. <laughs> I don't know what it was. <laughs> you got yeah, canceled, got man. Oh my God. <laughs> well, because yeah, I clicked through on your website and it just didn't go anywhere because I'm. Yeah, my website is, yeah, I don't, yeah, update it anymore, yeah. That's all right. We'll send everyone to Instagram and we'll post your um, your paper, this one that we've been talking about. That'll be in the description so people can follow along with that. It's a free download, so that's pretty rare. So thanks for that. All right, thanks, thanks Tim. Thanks for having me.